1 to 5 if you're not already there. And I'm going to come back to that passage in English in just a moment. We'll come back to it in English. But first, let's talk about rescue. Let's talk about rescue. On a cold winter day, Gabriel Estrada, a high school senior in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, did the unthinkable. When his 17-year-old girlfriend secretly, 17-year-old girlfriend secretly gave birth to a baby boy on January 15, 2002, she dressed the baby boy and asked him, her boyfriend, to deliver the boy to a church. Instead, Gabriel wrapped the baby in a canvas bag and left him in a portable toilet in a nearby park to die. But against incredible odds, the baby was saved. According to police, there was virtually no chance the infant would survive. Temperatures were well below freezing. Lack of snow meant the nearby sledding hill would not be frequented by kids. And the sanitation company's scheduled pickup at the porta potty was days away. Village of, Twin we- Village of Twin Lakes police credit a father and son for saving the child's life. About 4 o'clock in the afternoon on January 16th, a father wishing to remain anonymous, and his young son stopped at the abandoned Westside Park in need of a bathroom. Hearing a whimpering sound coming from the porta potty they knew something was wrong. They called 911 to report what they had discovered. When Officer Randy Prudick responded to the call, he pulled the canvas bag from the outdoor toilet and raised to nearby Burlington Memorial Hospital, where the baby received emergency treatment. There's no way... He would have survived that, Prudick said. That little guy had somebody watching over him. As a testament to the boy's survival, the nurses at the hospital dubbed him William Grant. William for the will to live, and Grant for not taking life for granted. On a grander scale, though, another father and son rescue team intervened on behalf of doomed humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. Another father and son intervened, not on behalf of one baby, though that is amazing and wonderful, on behalf of all humanity. We're going to start studying Galatians starting today. And we're going to walk through Galatians just like we did through Ephesians a year ago. And we're going to teach and preach through Galatians. And what we see is that Jesus rescues us. As we look at Galatians, we see that Jesus rescues humanity. Jesus rescues us from this present evil age by giving himself for our sins. So today's theme is Jesus died for our sins and we are saved by his blood on the cross. Jesus died for our sins, and we are saved by his blood on the cross. And I have one application, which I'll walk through in a little bit, uh, a little bit later, and that is, I encourage you to have a relationship with Jesus that is grounded in your love for him. Not in works, but in your love for him. So I want to start by talking about this letter, and then we'll read Galatians 1, 1 to 5, and talk about it more, and then we'll talk about it more, and then talk about, and then we'll go eat. <laughs> Let's talk about the letter. You know, this is a sermon series on Galatians, and whenever we study a book of the Bible, it's helpful to, to, to look at, at that book itself. Who was the author? When was it written? Who was it written to? What language was it written to? What's the cultural background? And so on and so on and so on. And in this short letter, Paul is rebuking the churches of this region for abandoning the true 
the true gospel. He's rebuking them for abandoning the true gospel and instead making it a works-based gospel. Instead of, uh, of grace-based salvation, they had been focusing on being saved by works. But we are not saved by works. We weren't saved by works then. We were not saved by works in the Old Testament. We're not saved by works now. We're saved by grace through faith and two good works. You can look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 about that. And because of that, I believe that we, when we are trusting in Jesus for salvation, we today can know... That we are saved. We can know. First John says that. We can know. John's gospel says that. We can know that we are going to heaven because we do not earn our salvation. We're saved by Jesus' blood on the cross. And in this letter, Paul is rebuking the Galatians for believing in a works-based salvation. Paul is also defending his apostleship. Paul, Paul had planted these churches. And, and after he had planted these churches in Galatia, some people came in. We call them Judaizers. Just to make sure you're awake, let's everybody say it. Say Judaizers. 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 And these were Jewish believers who believed that you had to keep the whole law, or at least a significant part of the law to be saved. We call them Judaizers. The Archaeological Study Bible uh, summarizes them this way. Judaizers were Jewish Christians who believed that a number of the ceremonial practices of the Old Testament were still binding on the New Testament church. These were Jewish Christians who came in after the Apostle Paul had started the church in Galatia. They had come in and they taught something contrary to New Testament teaching and even contrary to Old Testament teaching, teaching that they had to obey certain parts of the Jewish law. The Archaeological Study Bible is a really good source, and, and it gives the following themes of Galatians. The following themes. Number one, Paul vigorously defended his apostolic calling and his gospel. He was not trying to protect his wounded reputation as an apostle, but he was defending the truth of the gospel as it had been revealed to him by Christ. So he's defending the truth of the gospel being revealed to him by Jesus Christ. Another theme of Galatians, salvation by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone and not by works. Another one, another theme, justification by faith. This is a doctrine central to this letter, and it creates harmonious community. We are justified. In other words, we are made righteous. In other words, we are made right with God by faith alone and not by works, not by keeping a law or a ceremony. Another theme, this is number four, legalism versus freedom. Believers do not need to be under the law to lead ethical lives. The spirit whom they receive when they believe empowers them. The Holy Spirit empowers them to live the way God wants. The law can neither produce the fruit of the spirit, which you see in Galatians 5, through 23, nor can the law restrain people from sinning. The law's function is to identify sin and pronounce God's judgment. We see that in Galatians 3, 19 through 24. And it is through the believer's union with Christ that he or she is truly set free. This liberation is not freedom to sin, but freedom to serve one another in love. Galatians 5, 13. The last theme that I want to mention right now is a spirit-empowered life. 
Another theme of Galatians is a Holy Spirit-empowered life. Believers are not to rely on their own power to live the Christian life. The Spirit-led Christian does not live for self, but allows the fruit of the Spirit to shine through his or her everyday activities. You can't live the Christian life on your own power. We have to live the Christian life by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit's power. Galatians is a circular letter, and it's written to the churches of Galatia. It wasn't written to one church like Corinthians or certain other letters. It was circular. And there's debate about whether it was written to the churches of Galatia in the northern area of Galatia or the southern area. If it was written to the churches in the northern area of Galatia, these would have been churches which Paul planted on his second missionary journey. If they were written to churches on the, on, uh, in the southern area of Galatia, which is the predominant view that'll be on the test that then it was founded uh, this is written to churches which Paul planted on his first missionary journey which would be Acts chapter 14 verses 1 through 23 it's interesting that this may have been Paul's earliest letter this might have been written as early as AD 48 so now that you're in Galatians chapter 1 let's read those verses in English Galatians 1, 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. And that is key. And God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Few other thoughts about this. This is Paul's introduction in verse 1. And notice Paul's introduction. In this introduction, Paul is defending his apostleship. Paul says that he is an apostle. Notice this. He's an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. Paul's apostleship comes from Jesus Christ, not from man. This is in contrast to these Judaizers. This is in contrast to these false apostles who got their apostleship just from other humans. But Paul is saying his apostleship, his authority, comes from Jesus Christ. One source points out, thus in the first clause, in the very first clause, Paul distinguishes himself from the false apostles who did not derive their commission from God at all. In the second clause, Paul ranks himself with the twelve, who were commissioned directly from God. The prepositions, therefore, retain their proper sense. The, now, this is interesting. The nickname Paul is from the Latin Paulus. Paulus, that's Latin. See, you're even getting Latin today. You've gotten Slavic, you've gotten um, Polish, now you get some Latin and some English. This comes from the Latin Paulus, which means little. The earliest physical description of Paul we have comes from a 2nd century apocryphal writing. It described Paul as a, quote, a man of small stature, can't hold that against him, <laughs> with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man and now he had the face of an angel. The apostle's Hebrew name was Saul. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he consistently used his Gentile name, Paul. 
in its epistles. Apostle means one who is sent, and it could be used in a generic sense, but this is not how it's used here. Paul is one who is sent, not generically by humans, but sent by God. In verse 2, Paul includes others who are with them. Paul then addresses the churches of Galatia. Paul then abruptly moves on to theology. He, uh, he, he, he straightforwardly moves on to theology. And one theologian points out, since Paul abruptly moves on to theology, it is showing how deep the apostasy was of the churches of Galatia. He did not give nice, friendly greetings here. He went straight to the point of the letter. He went straight to the rebuke. He went straight to the correction. And a key point here is theology matters. Doctrine matters. And we're preaching or teaching an erroneous soteriology, which is the theology of salvation. It is a grievous problem that needs to be dealt with and dealt with quickly and sharply. It's not a trivial thing. Usually Paul would give a commendation. One writes, the abruptness of the language here is remarkable. Elsewhere, the apostle adds some words of commendation. The church of Thessalonians, for, for instance, is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of Corinthians is composed of those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The omission of any expression of praise in addressing the Galatians shows the extent of their apostasy. Now, notice Paul's theology for Galatia. If you look at verses 3 through 5 briefly, Paul says who died to save us. Or it's talking about Jesus, and Paul says of Jesus that he died to save us. Or my translation, the New American Standard Bible says of Jesus who gave himself for sins so he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God. He's talking about Jesus who died to save us. Jesus who rescued us from our sins. And this is really important. Because verses 3 through 4 is touching on exactly what their problem was. The churches in Galatia had almost taken away the blood of Jesus, saving us from our sins. They had nullified the grace of God. And we see that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. They had taken away the blood of Jesus, cleansing us from our sins. They had nullified the grace of God by going to a works-based salvation. By telling the people they had to keep the law. But Jesus gave himself for our sins. Jesus did this in order to rescue us from this present evil age. In the New Testament, we see a contrast between the ways of the world and the ways of God. This present evil age Jesus rescues us from. Time magazine carried an interesting story about a rescue. About the rescue of former President George Herbert Walker Bush. It described a trip he took back to the South Pacific. During World War II, Bush had been a bomber pilot, and he was shot down by Japanese anti-aircraft fire. The article detailed Bush's return to the very spot where he was rescued from his downed aircraft. During his return visit, Bush met with a Japanese gentleman who claimed to have witnessed Bush's rescue back in 1944. This man witnessed Bush's rescue. The man related that as he... And others were watching the rescue take place. One of the man's friends remarked, Surely America will win the war if they care so much for the life of one pilot to spend all these resources rescuing one pilot. If 
find that as a reminder as we talk about rescue and Jesus rescuing us from this present evil age, that Jesus is so great and so powerful that he can care so much for every single one of us, to rescue us, to save us, not by works, but by grace. If we were saved by works, then the cross was meaningless. If we could earn our salvation, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross because we could earn it. We could work hard enough. We could be holy enough. We have nothing to brag about when we talk about salvation. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is great grace, and Jesus is great love, and Jesus, Jesus is great mercy. The only thing we can brag about is how great our God is. Amen? How great our God is to rescue us, to save us, to set us free. As you look at verse 5, it's a beautiful doxology. So I encourage you to have a relationship with Jesus that is grounded in your love for him. But let's think a little bit more about some applications. We must recognize that we are not saved by works. We are to do good works in order to show our faith. And you can see that in James 2, 14 through 18, especially verse 18. We must trust in Jesus alone for salvation. We don't trust in anything other than Jesus alone for salvation. We are not saved by church attendance. But please attend church. <laughs> you, you attend church to grow in your relationship with Jesus. You're not saved by prayers. But pray to know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus. We are not saved by serving people. But we serve to love people. We are not saved by anything other than the blood of Jesus on the cross. We must not nullify the grace of God. We must share this good news of the gospel with others. We must worship Jesus for his atoning death. Galatians teaches that doctrine matters and wrong doctrine is dangerous. We will watch over the church's doctrine. We must watch over our own doctrine. Doctrine is not a scary word. It's not a bad word. Every Christian should read uh, at least some basic books on, on proper theology so we know why we believe what we believe. The ESV study Bible is a really good section in the back of the Bible uh, about basic Bible doctrine. Are we grateful for our salvation? Do we worship the Lord for our salvation? Sometimes we get a, a type of gratefulness or wakefulness when we're saved. It's just basic gospel wakefulness. We're excited about our salvation. But sometimes later on, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, God really strikes us and hits us. And we really get extreme gospel wakefulness. Jared Wilson defines this gospel wakefulness as treasuring Christ more greatly and savoring his power more sweetly. He illustrates it with the following. Imagine you're driving down the road and your car stalls at a railroad crossing. You are understandably nervous as you try to reignite the car's engine. But you become even more so when you see a train turn the corner in the distance and begin quickly closing the gap between it and you. The train, the train engine's horn is blowing, blaring, and the engineer is thrown on the brakes. But you are too close, and he's coming too fast. You move from trying to get the car to start to trying to unfasten your seatbelt. But fear has made your hands stiffen and shake. You can't get your seatbelt unfastened. The train is rushing toward you, and you know you're going to be hit. And you are. Suddenly, and from behind, you are hit. A man in a truck behind you has decided to ram into your car and push you off the tracks, even as he is destroyed by the impact in the very spot you once occupied. You get out of the car, shaken and still frightened. You are terrified by the gruesome scene and shock over your rescuer's sacrifice. You are grateful... You're grateful in a way that you've never been grateful before. That's 
being grateful, just like being go- uh, grateful for the gospel when you're first saved. But, listen to this. Even in your terrified awe, it feels good to be alive. You feel woozy, so you sit down in the trunk of your car. And as you're trying to retrieve your cell phone from your pocket to call 911, and marveling at how little damage the violent shove did to the rear bumper, you hear a whimper from inside. You didn't know that before you'd left the house, as your kids were playing at hide-and-seek, your youngest son decided to hide in the trunk of your car. As you open it up frantically and discover that he is miraculously unharmed, you suddenly realize the total gratefulness the total greatness of the loss you almost suffered. Your gratitude, your amazement, your new outlook on life takes a giant leap forward. And that is the difference between the gospel wakefulness of conversion and the greater wakefulness that often occurs later. So what do you have? What do we have? Are we very grateful for our salvation? Do we have gospel wakefulness? Are we excited for our faith? So excited that we can't hold it in. We have to go everywhere we go and share our faith with others. Have gospel conversation. It may not be reading a tract. It might be asking a waitress or waiter if you can pray for them while you pray for your food. It might be just bringing up a gospel conversation. But we just can't hold it inside. It's Romans 1, 16 through 17, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, anyone can come after me, but he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. Jesus gives us a free gift of salvation, but he does call us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow. The Christian life is free, but it'll cost you everything but it will bring great, great joy, serving and following Jesus. Jesus calls us to confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior, to believe that he is the only Savior, to trust in him and commit to him. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for our awesome salvation in you. Oh, Lord, I thank you. Wake us up. Give us this gospel wakefulness that that uh, Jared Wilson talked about, where we just cannot contain uh, the awesomeness of our salvation, our excitement. We got to share it with others. Lord, may we be satisfied in you, secure in you, thankful to you. May we recognize we are saved by grace through faith. We don't earn our salvation. May we recognize that doctrine matters. And may we follow you. Help us, Lord, following you. Help us, Lord, being committed to you. And if there's anyone here right now who has not committed their life to you, may today be the day of salvation, where they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believe that you are the only Savior, trust in you and commit to you. May they tell you that in a simple prayer, such as this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe that you are the only way to salvation, to heaven. I'm committing my life to you and trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Lord, help us all, trusting in you and following you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, if you have-